The following was recorded at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, November 6th, Election Day. I'm Aaron Schachter in Boston. And from London, I'm Marco Werman. The world watches and waits for U.S. election results in some places more anxiously than others. People in Iran are watching these elections with bated breath. The next person who takes over the White House can pretty much decide their futures. Plus, voting in the wake of Sandy, some immigrant voters in Brooklyn ran into trouble. We do have problems with voters who are turned away because they could not speak English. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. This is The World. I'm Aaron Schachter in Boston. And I'm Marco Werman in London. Well, Election Day is finally here, and by all accounts, the outcome of the presidential race will be very, very close, which explains why GOP candidates Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan made a last-minute visit to Ohio today, as did Vice President Joe Biden before flying to Chicago to join President Obama. Later in the program, we're going to hear about how the U.S. election is being watched in other parts of the globe. But we begin our coverage closer to home in New York, Many wondered how the voting would go in areas devastated by Superstorm Sandy. The storm-battered immigrant neighborhood of Brighton Beach in Brooklyn is a good place to try and find out. The majority of residents there are immigrants from the former Soviet Union. Many are elderly and still don't have electricity or heat in their homes. Even so, voters did turn up today at the Shorefront Jewish Community Center in Brighton Beach. 27-year-old Vadim Drell, an immigrant from Moldova, is working as a poll watcher there. From where I'm standing right now, I can actually see the ocean, and the polling place is next to me. So this area got hit pretty bad. Uh, many of the apartment buildings here are multi-story. We're talking, talking towers of you know, 10, 20 floors and uh, with no power, which means many people are just stuck at home because they're wheelchair-bound or uh, unable to make it up, up and down 20-something flights of stairs if necessary. Drell says the polling station has been very crowded today and loud which has made for a very confusing voting experience for many. But Fanya Vasilevskaya, the election coordinator there, told me the more serious problem is the lack of help for the area's Russian-speaking residents. We do have problems with voters who are turned away because they could not speak English. And I have at least maybe 30 percent right now. People are just leaving the voter bulletins and they say, we cannot do it because we don't have help. Uh, usually we have um, Democrat and Republican coming and helping them, but now we don't have this because of the shortage of poll workers. And translators and things like that. Uh, or translators, we don't have any literature in Russian. We don't have any translators. And um, uh, the whole uh, district is suffering 
Vadim Drell thinks what's happening at the polling place today highlights a larger problem. He says the city of New York has to do more for the residents of Brighton Beach. I would say the city itself hasn't done enough at all in this area, at least with the senior population that is, and is not able to communicate in English, regardless of the elections, just dealing with the devastation. Do you feel like people have been treated differently, that the immigrants got short shrift uh, after the storm? I think the issue here is that in the American system, as wonderful as it is, and I'm a big fan, you're required to be an active participant. And due to their language barrier, they're just simply unable to to reach out. And further, uh, they don't know whom to reach out to because many of these people are coming from a different political system and they're just not used to the idea that you can call and ask for help. Their, Their mentality, their mental attitude is that the government is supposed to provide in cases of emergency. That was Vadim Drell, an immigrant from Moldova, and today a poll watcher in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. All this week we've been hearing some really compelling voices on the election, whether it's people in the areas hard hit by Sandy or people living far from American shores. You can find all of our election campaign coverage at theworld.org slash elections. And, of course, we're on Twitter. Join the conversation. Hashtag TheWorldVotes. The world's Marco Werman has been in London for the past few days. Hello, Aaron. Did you vote? Yes, sir. And and you? Yeah, three weeks ago, absentee ballot. Now, that was good thinking ahead. Mm. So, Marco, uh, this week you've been talking to people from around the world about the American presidency and about today's vote here in the U.S. What do you have for us today? Well, I had a great chat with two journalists from the BBC's Persian service right here in London. They are on-air host Pune Gudusi and news editor Amir Azimi. Let's begin with Amir Azimi telling me why the U.S. election is so important for Iran this year. This is pretty huge this time because the negotiations between Iran and the West on the nuclear program is at a very crucial point right now. And the sanctions which has been imposed by the U.S. and the Europeans is biting really hard right now. And they see this election and the next person who takes over the White House can pretty much decide their futures. It's interesting. A recent poll taken in Pakistan found that if Pakistanis could vote in the U.S. presidential election, Romney would win by a landslide. What do you think would happen if the vote were held in Iran? People in Iran are watching these elections with bated breath because it is very important to them right now who will become the next president. Obviously, for the past four years, Obama has been talking tough, but there hasn't been a worse situation in in terms of war, at least, although the sanctions are crippling the economy of Iran. And uh, that's the kind of thing that any moment you decide to negotiate or drop the enrichment, you can actually go back. As Hillary Clinton offered a carrot about a month ago, And she said, the moment you drop enrichment, we can always go back to renegotiating and reinvesting and uh, doing trade with Iran. But Romney has had really a tough stance against Iran. In all of his election campaign, in all of his speeches and debates, he's always mentioned things that give a little bit of a shiver on the spine of every Iranian, the thought of the possibility of a worse situation like war or other options that they keep saying are on the table coming to head. Therefore, I think at this moment, Iranians who have not seen anything great happening between the US and Iran in the four years of Obama are still really worried that if Romney becomes president, it could be even worse. However, in in history, actually, 
although there's always been this worry of neocons and Republicans being tougher against Iran, history has proven that every time a Democrat has been in power, relations with Iran have been worse. And every time a Republican, ironically, mm. has been in power, uh, negotiations or talks with Iran have actually been a little bit better. Just a tiny little bit, actually. I mean, the perceived uh, worry in Iran can also be drawn from, I guess, just the persona uh, of the individual, of the persona of Obama, the persona of Romney. It was interesting in, uh, I think it was the, the last debate, where Romney criticized Obama for not going to Israel on his trip through the Middle East in 2009. Yes. And I'm just wondering how Iranians perceived that comment. Obama, for example, went to Cairo, traveled throughout the Middle East, gave direct messages and direct interviews trying to engage the Iranian youth especially and the Iranian public. And Romney seems a lot closer to Israel and a lot less inclined to sit at a negotiating table or discuss the possibility of friendship or relations, which might be too much to ask, obviously, with the way the Iranian state is uh, responding to those requests. I don't really know what an ordinary Iranian in one of the small townships around Iran would make of the whole process, but they typically believe that the United States has the bigger say, no matter who takes the White House, they almost go for the same goals. So from their point of view, from where they are living, what they see is the foreign policy of the United States. And in the foreign policy, it doesn't make such a big difference. Can I, sorry, yeah. just add one comment mm. on that. Um, Obama or any other president has never been to Iran, never been interviewed on a state television that millions of Iranians can actually have access to. They've never been uh, portrayed on any channel or a documentary about their lives or details of their opinions and their thoughts and beliefs. They've never even been given that kind of an opportunity that Ahmadinejad has been given. Therefore, it is a lot easier for the American public to decide what image or what take they want to have on the Iranian president than it is for the Iranians to want to decide on Obama's personality. After all, Obama has only been able to get in touch with the Iranian people through technology like Facebook, Twitter, foreign office page, um, satellite channel interview, which is actually heavily filtered and jammed in Iran anyway. So he doesn't really have any way of getting in touch with the Iranian people and showing showing his own opinions, nor does Romney for that matter. Aaron, that was Puna Gudusi, host at the BBC's Persian Service and Amir Azimi, news editor also with the Persian Service. Thank you, Marco. And stay with us for just a moment. We've got the world's Matthew Bell on the line with us from Jerusalem. Now, Matthew, as we just heard, the perception is that Romney has a closer relationship with Israel. That's at least from the Persian service. Is that the feeling inside Israel? If you look at the newspapers today, there are op-eds on both sides. You've got uh, papers endorsing Barack Obama. You've got other op-eds endorsing Mitt Romney. When you look at polling among the Israeli public, uh, for sure, Mitt Romney does have more support. Uh, there's been speculation that um, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, has, has indeed essentially endorsed Mitt Romney's candidacy by some of the public statements he's made criticizing President Obama on the issue of Iran in particular. Today, the deputy foreign minister was asked uh, precisely about this question, and he said, look, it, it it basically doesn't matter who wins the election. Uh, U.S. support for Israel is bipartisan. Uh, whoever's better for America is better for Israel. That is certainly not a message that uh, seems to be playing here in the United States. There is a definite belief 
among U.S. Jews, I think, and and a feeling that in Israel, the belief is that Romney will be better for Israel than uh, Barack Obama has been. I think Israelis are in a in a right wing mood, and I've I've talked to people who are very thoughtful on this, and they say, look, there's just sort of a, a hint of uh, uncertainty about this president in particular, the fact that he went to Cairo, he very actively reached out to the Arab and Muslim world, he never came to visit Israel, people have told me. We're just not sure this guy, when it comes down to the moment of truth, uh, Barack Obama, might be willing to use force against a country like Iran that has said it wants to wipe Israel off the map. Matthew, it's Marco in London. How much does that idea, the specter of nuclear war, concern people in Israel? I mean, that must be at the top of their minds right now. Israelis are incredibly concerned. For for months, the, there's been this steady drumbeat of news stories. It seems like almost every day Iran or something to do with Iran and the nuclear program in Iran is in the headlines here. Um, many people describe it as an existential threat. It's something in particular that Benjamin Netanyahu has talked an awful lot about. Um, he has he has pointed to this as, as one of his greatest accomplishments in, in sort of ratcheting up the pressure, um, even influencing uh, the West, including the United States, to put tougher sanctions on Iran. So sure, the public thinks about that uh, as a hugely important issue here. Matthew, this is Aaron. Israeli elections are, are coming up early next year. Help us to understand how the outcome of the U.S. election could impact the Israeli contest. Aaron, I think it could impact the, the process. The Israeli elections are coming up on January 22nd. If, for example, Barack Obama wins and has a second term, there's speculation here in Israel that Obama might then try to pressure the Netanyahu government in ways that he wouldn't do if he had to worry about re-election. The, the politicians in the center and from and on the left, if Obama wins, they're going to try to bring up this issue of Netanyahu's frosty relationship with Obama uh, and point and say, look, we'll be better stewards of the relationship with the United States than he will. It really could become an election issue here. The world's Matthew Bell from Jerusalem. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. And Marco Werman, thanks for joining us from London. We'll hear more from you later in the show. Sure. Thank you. The View from Europe is coming up. We've got lots more election coverage at theworld.org slash elections. This is Public Radio International, PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. For several days, Marco Werman has been bringing us global views on the election from London. Let's head now to other parts of Europe, to a couple of our own correspondents. First, we have Amy Bracken in Paris. Amy, the U.S. elections, are they a big deal where you are? You know, you'd almost think that people here were actually voting. It's just amazing how much coverage there's been. And I've been learning a lot from the coverage, just reading the newspapers, um, learning about how the whole electoral process works, uh, learning about the details of the candidates' families and where they stand on the issues. People are following this very closely. Uh, I wasn't here four years ago. I understand it was really electric four years ago. People say it's it's not quite that. Now there might be a little bit more fear about things changing for the worse, but people are 
they're pretty into this. They're pretty excited. Well, thank goodness for the French media. You learn a little bit there. Amy, you were out and about today in uh, Paris. Uh, What were people telling you? Some people talked about more specific policies. Some people talked about health care. I talked to one person who had just emerged from the hospital. He's a furniture maker. He injured himself on the job. His name is Frederic Sanchez, and I spoke with him in a cafe this morning in Paris. He's trying to put health care for all Americans, and um, this is a big thing. And a man who does things like that can't be a bad man. Amy, hang on for just a moment. Uh, we're going to turn now to Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. And, and Jerry, the sentiment there, similar, hope, excitement, a little bit of fear perhaps? Well, I think compared to what Amy's been telling us, the, the overall interest in the U.S. election here is decidedly more muted than it was four years ago. A lot of that has to do with the economic crisis going on here. It also has to do with um, uh, some disappointment in Obama himself. Um, As Amy mentioned, Europeans were very excited when he was elected four years ago, uh, in part because some of the promises he made, especially closing down Guantanamo Bay and so forth. They also thought that he was going to pay more attention to Europe than he has over the last four years. The flip side is is Mitt Romney, and uh, I have to say that my sense is that he hasn't really made much of a deep impression in Europe. Uh, the other day I asked a parent down at my kid's school uh, uh, what, what, who she'd like to see as the next American president, and here's part of what she said. Basically, she wants to say that she doesn't know much about Mitt Romney, but she can't even remember his name. And I, I think it's fair to say that across Europe, Romney has left somewhat of a shallow footprint. And when he has mentioned Europe in the campaign, it's only been to hold it up as an example of failure, the failure of the so-called uh, welfare state, which to his mind means a state that overspends and overcoddles its citizens with, with social services, such as universal health care. And many people find that insulting. And related to that, he's also a proponent of austerity, of slashing government spending. And if you look at Spain and Greece, you know the two poster children for austerity in Europe – their economies are imploding and both have unemployment rates hovering around 25%. So when Romney mentions uh, slashing government spending, what more and more Europeans in the south of the continent are hearing is economic suicide. And he also used both Greece and uh, Spain in debates as examples of what the United States does not want to become. That's right. Now, this is a question for both you, Jerry, in Spain and Amy in France. Um, what really struck you about this election from your vantage point there and uh, the sentiment in Europe? One thing, I, I was struck by how uncritical people were. I, I expected a lot more criticism of Obama. Um, I think that people, you know, a number of people said, hey, you, you know, I, I, I see this differently from how I would as an American. I don't really know all the details of his policies. Uh, but what I see on the other end is this guy. And it's funny, Jerry, a lot of people here couldn't think of his name either. Um, this other guy who uh, he seems to be unpredictable. He's very far to the right. So uh, I, was, I was just struck by sort of how clear the divisions were in people's minds. What surprised me really this time around is this sort of, you know, I have to say a low level of interest in the details of the election. I have interviewed people, you know, all over Spain, even as far as Germany before this election. And when you ask people, who, who would you like to see as the next president? You know, invariably, people were saying to me, Obama. But when asked why or what issues were important, people would just kind of shrug, especially in Spain, and say, well, you know, it's the most powerful country in the world. But no one really had 
pressing issues vis-a-vis the United States that they wanted to talk about. And I really think it has to do with the fact that people are simply just struggling so much with their own economic situations, trying to find jobs or hang on to jobs or just make ends meet. And that has somehow put the U.S. election at a greater distance than we've seen in the past. The world's Jerry Haddon in Barcelona and Amy Bracken joined us from Paris. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So what do you think? We've got folks around the world sharing their opinions about the U.S. presidential election on Twitter. Add your voice to the conversation. Our election HQ is at theworld.org slash elections. Make sure to include the hashtag TheWorldVotes. All the world's eyes may be on Ohio today, where election returns could decide who will be the next president of the United States. All eyes, that is, except perhaps those of a few thousand cetologists, who may instead be consumed by today's issue of the journal Current Biology. Cetologists are people who study whales. And in the world of whale science, the news today is big. The story comes from New Zealand, where scientists for the first time have identified remains of what they say is the world's rarest whale. It is so rare, in fact, that so far as we know, no one has ever seen one alive. Rochelle Constantine is a lecturer in biology at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. She was part of a team of scientists who identified two whale carcasses that washed up on a beach two years ago. And uh, Dr. Constantine, you have found... The Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster of Wales. (laughs) Well, I guess so. It was quite a surprise for us. I I guess the first specimen being found way back in 1872 off New Zealand and then one again in 1950 and then the most recent one in uh, 1986 off Chile. All of those were just skull fragments, so they weren't Tell me what they are. What are they called? Uh, The the whale is called the spade-toothed beaked whale. And so it's one of a group of 21 beaked whales. And uh, it's not unusual for New Zealand to have beaked whales, but it was certainly unusual to find the two first whole specimens of this particular species. It must have been a little frustrating for you, though, because people didn't know what it was when the whales first washed up on shore and they just buried the carcasses. No, that's right. I mean, it's standard protocol to bury the carcasses. You know, they are a public health issue. You know, at the time, they didn't know what they had. So, you know, there was no ill will in right. them doing what they did. But not all is lost. And, and it's it's good that we were able to get the carcasses back. You know, if we don't know all that much about the spade-toothed beaked whale, how do you know it's the rarest whale in the world? Maybe it's just the shyest whale in the world. <laughs> well, that's very possible. I think, um, you know, that title was suggested, I think, because this is the whale in the world we know the least about. Well, I I wonder if you think there might be other whales out there that no one has ever seen at all, even as a carcass or, or just a bunch of bones. No reason why not. One of the things that always amazes me is how little we know about the ocean. We have a massive ocean. Our planet is mostly ocean. And yet we have so little knowledge about what's out there. I mean, this animal, this female, she was 5.3 meters long. She's an enormous animal, really. You know, there's something you'd like to think you will have noticed. Rochelle Constantine is a lecturer in biology at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. She was a member of the team that identified the remains of two members of the world's rarest whale species, the spade-toothed beaked whale. Doctor, thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for your interest. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Coming up on The World, China officially selects its next leader this week. But don't expect any campaign leaflets. 
There have been restrictions in department stores for parents buying toys for their kids, you know, like little helicopters that are remote controlled because there's a concern that these could be used to drop leaflets or something else. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's decision time in China. In the same week when we Americans are selecting the occupant of the White House for the next four years, China's Communist Party is holding its Congress to select the leaders who will likely be in power for the next decade. The Congress opens Thursday in Beijing's Great Hall of the People on Tiananmen Square. The decisions will be made behind closed doors. But the world's Beijing correspondent, Mary Kay Magstead, says it's not all a done deal. We don't know everyone who's coming in. We do know that in all likelihood, the next head of the party will be Xi Jinping, who has been the vice president uh, over the last four years. But at this point, we don't know how many people will be in the top committee, the Politburo Standing Committee. It might be seven people, might be nine. We don't know who the makeup of that committee will be. It's been a very opaque process. We don't even know when the party congress is going to end. We know that it starts on Thursday. It might be a week, might be longer. They, they're, they're making decisions behind closed doors, and very few people in China really know what's going to happen. Right. No, no, the Congress we're talking about is taking place near Tiananmen Square. I imagine there's pretty tight security there. Well, and not just there. There have actually been some very interesting security precautions taken in recent days. Um, there are lots of police all over Tiananmen Square and around the surrounding area, both plainclothes and uniformed. Um, but also, taxi drivers have been told that they need to make sure that passengers don't roll down their windows when they're driving past Tiananmen Square because there's a concern that they might throw out leaflets that are anti-party. Um, there have been restrictions in department stores for parents buying toys for their kids, you know, like little helicopters that are remote controlled. You have to show an ID to buy them because there's a concern that these could be used also to drop leaflets or something else. And there's just a there's been a real squeeze on on internet connections. It's very hard to get through to sites that were easy to reach even two or three days ago. Now, why are authorities so anxious about um, this possibility of protest? Does it not make them look really insecure? It does, but they are. Um, basically. <laughs> it just is. That's the answer. Yeah. I mean, they want this to go smoothly. And the way they know to proceed when they want something to go smoothly is make everyone shut up, make everyone stay in line and do what the party wants them to do. Um, and in fact, they often take dissidents or people who have been known to be outspoken and critical, not even dissidents, and move them outside of town, physically outside of town and under you know some sort of um, enforced rest till the whole thing is over. Um, it's just, you know, the party has its script. It wants to be able to follow the script without any interruptions, without any diversions. It really wants to control the next week. Now, uh, obviously, the whole point of the party Congress is to reshuffle the, uh, the leadership. Uh, what happens to the guys who, who go out? Do they just disappear from public life? Do they hit the lecture circuit like Bill Clinton? What, what do they do? 
That's such a good question, and it's especially a good question in these recent days when some of the party elders, people like Jiang Zemin, who was the head of the party in the 1990s and is now in his mid-80s, have been reappearing in public and sort of making it clear that they're still around and they still have a say. And in fact, decision-making about who would be the top seven or top nine people in the party for these next 10 years or at least the next five, those decisions were made in part by the party elders who have no official titles, but nonetheless have clout. And they have people who they put in power when they were still in office. And those people are still listening to them. Now, uh, quickly back to the election here for a moment. Uh, what's at stake for China in the U.S. election? Does uh, Beijing endorse one candidate or the other? Do they really care? They care that they want to have a counterpart in the United States who is level-headed and predictable and who they can deal with. That What they've seen over time is that U.S. presidential candidates will make a lot of rash statements when they're campaigning, and they almost always have to walk it back once they're president. Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing, thank you. Thanks, Aaron. A different kind of change is the focus of our GeoQuiz today. South Africa is introducing some brand new banknotes, and for the first time, the country is honoring former President Nelson Mandela by putting his picture on the currency. The governor of the South African Reserve Bank spent some of the new Rand notes at a local market today in the city where the Reserve Bank is headquartered. Can you name it? Here's a hint. It's not Johannesburg. The five new notes each have a familiar image on the reverse side, one of the big five. The five iconic wild animals often associated with South Africa's national parks. So name the Big Five for some extra GeoQuiz credit. Let's turn now to Marco Werman in London. Marco, you've been reporting all week from perhaps the world's most international city on how folks from all over the globe view today's U.S. elections. Mm -hmm. But before we actually talk about elections, Marco... A quick pop quiz. You ready for this? Okay, go ahead. Can you name any of South Africa's big five wild animals? Oh, yeah, sure. That's an easy one. First of all, you got your lions. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. You... wait, wait, wait. <laughs> we'll, we'll give you the four other animals in a few minutes okay. as part of our geo quiz. And that city where the first brand new Nelson Mandela Rand was spent. Marco, stay with us for this next conversation. We're bringing in the world's Anders Kelto. He's in Cape Town, South Africa. Anders, are South Africans on the edge of their seats about this election as we are here in the U.S.? I don't think most people feel like the president of the United States has a direct impact on their lives, but there's a symbolic importance to the person in the White House, especially if it's once again Barack Obama. You know, his election as the first black president of the U.S. had a hugely powerful impact on, on people here. It, it really changed the way that people saw America. You know, it, it overnight became a country that was capable of electing a black leader. And that fact inspired a lot of people here. It, it became seen as a symbol of hope. Hi, Anders. This is Marco in London. I just wanted to uh, ask you a quick question from this end. I was upstairs here at the BBC Broadcasting House at the African Service, and they've dispatched a team to President Obama's ancestral village in Kenya. So uh, clearly what you're saying about his stature still resonating in Africa is true there. But there's an interesting nuance. You know, in 2008, he was seen as a black man who won the White House. But as I spoke yesterday with half Sierra Leonean, half Scottish writer Aminata Forna, she pointed out 
that now in 2012, Obama is seen more realistically as a politician, i.e. for the majority of Africans, he's a man of privilege. And I'm just wondering if that's something that you've been hearing in South Africa. I think people do have a more nuanced understanding of Obama now. He is not seen as sort of a savior for the continent, the way that maybe some people saw him at the last election, in part because of his track record. I mean, Obama hasn't really done that much for Africa, certainly not compared to some past presidents like Bill Clinton, who created a hugely important trade agreement here and who had a very close personal relationship with Nelson Mandela. So I think some people are still sort of waiting to see what is he really going to do and does he really care about Africa? That being said, if you ask anyone here what they think of Obama, they'll say, they love him. And a lot of people, especially in Kenya, will say that, you know, he's their cousin. Here in South Africa, people will say, you know, Obama, he's an African like us. What would you say is the top priority that South Africans have for the next U.S. president? I think within the aid and development community, there is a lot of concern about what happens with the election. Africa as a whole, relies heavily on the U.S. for foreign aid, for food aid, for um, support with their health systems, for fighting HIV. And there is always an eye on the U.S. presidency because the person in that position has to make some tough decisions together with Congress about how much money to continue giving to Africa. So I'd say that's the primary concern. Um, other issues that have come up when I've talked to people have been security. America is still seen here as sort of the world police, and people worry that someone in office who doesn't prioritize Africa might start to withdraw troops and defense systems from the area. There's concerns about stability in East Africa if the U.S. were to start backing out of that region. So people do still look to America as uh, a stabilizing force of security in the region. The world's Anders Kelto in Cape Town, South Africa. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Oh, Anders, one more thing before we let you go. A little help with our geo-quiz today. Where did the governor of South Africa's Reserve Bank spend the country's new currency? <laughs> So you spent brand new Mandela notes at a market in Pretoria. And Pretoria is the answer to the geo quiz. It's where South Africa's Reserve Bank is headquartered. The bank's governor, Gil Marcus, was among the first to make a purchase with the new Mandela bill. She told reporters that the new rand are a way of saying thank you to Nelson Mandela. He's touched the lives of every South African and has committed himself um, to a better world, a better South Africa. And therefore, the tribute to him, it's, it's one way all of us can recognize him. And uh, given that the extent to which as a world figure, as a South African figure, it's something that we can all be very proud of. The owner of the market said he was pleased to be one of the first to pocket a Mandela bill, in this case a 200 rand note with Mandela on one side and a leopard on the other. That's about 23 bucks. We did get the first notes in our shop. I feel like a, a champion to have a first notes. And uh, uh, I like the colors. The colors is very wonderful. It's, uh, it suits to South Africa colors, very hot colors. As a South Africa, it's hot country. And I feel grateful. And uh, I look for more uh, for fu future, for more notes as the customers bring along. Another man who works at the market said of the Mandela bill, South Africa is changing. The whole world is changing because of Mandela. It is very nice. Another nice feature is the security design. The new bills use special ink that shifts color in different light. 
There's also a hidden watermark image of Mandela, so counterfeiters have their work cut out for them. The notes also have embossed lines to help visually impaired people find the right bills. And we reject all counterfeits, too. The only correct answer to the GeoQuiz today is Pretoria. As for the big five, pictured on the flip side of the new bills, the animals are the rhino, elephant, lion, water buffalo, and leopard. You can check out the new Mandela bills at theworld.org, all for free. Voter turnout may well determine the outcome of today's presidential election here in the U.S., and if turnout is high, the total number of ballots cast could be close to 130 million. Sounds like a pretty big number, right? Not by the standards they use in India. Voter participation in the world's most populous democracy is traditionally high and rising. Hartash Ball is political editor of Open, a weekly current affairs magazine in India. He says the country faces many of the same challenges we do when it comes to national elections, but its electorate is a whole lot bigger. The electorate have, I think, about 700 million voters turning out. (laughs) And the election takes place in phases. You cannot possibly cover the entire country in one day. So the elections are staggered over 10 or 15 days in different parts of the country. Whichever part of the country happens to go to the polls, firms, government and private are required to give a holiday on that particular day. There's a considerable amount of enthusiasm that the voting process, the day of voting, has a certain atmosphere to it, which is sort of uh, more like a fair. It's a sense of participation in something important. It sounds like it's uh, literally a holiday. Well, yeah, it literally is a holiday. (laughs) Now, uh, people often talk about the logistical challenges here in the United States, diverse populations across cities and rural areas. We have some language issues uh, and and the number of people at polling stations. But, I I mean, compared to India, as you say, with 700 million people voting, um, how is it that India can manage such successful elections? We have a separate federal autonomous body that has its own funding, its own budget, that actually takes charge of the election machinery uh, going into the elections on election day and up till counting. And the political process, whether it's, we also have a federal system, whether it's the center or the states, has no say in the election process, whether it is deciding who can vote, who cannot vote, what identification is needed for voting. This is all under this autonomous body, it is totally depoliticized from the system. The political parties do not see this as a partisan process. Neither do the voters. Now, I understand also that um, there is a high voter turnout among uh, the poor in India. And with all due respect, it, it seems like a, a voting block that might be easily manipulated. Yes, there are allurements to rural voters There is a direct transfer of money. There is even distribution of liquor. But quite apart from that, this is a tendency that goes across all parts of India, that the turnout of the poor, the less well-to-do in this country, is higher than the middle class and the well-to-do. And this can't simply be explained in terms of allurements or inducements. It is actually a process by which they feel empowered because it is one of the few ways in which they engage with the political system or the administration. So so it's it's a moment during the year, perhaps, or a moment during every few years where the poor actually feel like they can control something in their own lives. Well, yeah, if, if you can't get your legislator to work for you, at least you can vote him out of power. <laughs> Even that is empowering in some way or the other. 
Hartosh Singh Ball, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That was a pleasure. All week, we've been offering you global perspectives on the U.S. presidential election and some great pictures on Instagram to go with our coverage, courtesy of the world's Marco Werman in London. Follow our photo stream for the latest. We're at PRI The World. Follow Marco on Twitter, at Marco Werman. I'm at World Aaron. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. There's been a shakeup in the House of Saud. Saudi Arabia's interior minister has resigned. That may not seem that momentous, but this official was the 72-year-old brother of King Abdullah. His replacement is his younger nephew, Prince Mohammed bin Nayef. He's 53, young by Saudi standards. Gregory Gauss III is professor of political science at the University of Vermont and specializes in Saudi Arabian affairs. Professor Gauss, who is Prince Mohammed and why is his appointment controversial? He is the son of the long-serving interior minister who was also crown prince, Prince Nayef, who died a number of months ago. And he has been a deputy minister for some time and in charge of dealing with the al-Qaeda threat within Saudi Arabia, which he has done in a pretty successful way. Uh, The controversial nature of this is that this kind of shunting aside of an older generation for a younger generation is an unusual thing in Saudi. And this does put Mohammed bin Nayef in one of the major ministries of the kingdom and does put him, I don't want to say in line, but makes him a potential king down the road. Well, yeah, explain that. Why is the position of interior minister significant? Is there a job there or is it just kind of a king in waiting? No, it's a huge job. It is basically the chief of police for the country. The interior ministry runs the internal security in the country. And so the interior minister has a substantial security force under his control. He has a large budget. He has a major political role in the country. He's chief censor in many ways. He is the guy who kind of polices the country. Okay. Now, you suggested that uh, Prince Ahmed uh, was, was pushed out. Why might that have been? Well, we don't know, because the opacity of the Saudi system is almost absolute, particularly when it comes to issues within the ruling family itself. But he had only been interior minister for a couple of months, and uh, it doesn't seem like there were health issues. Uh, At least there's no public indication of that. This is a guy who had been the number two uh, with his brother, Prince Nayef, for uh, decades. And thus, it's just surprising. Now, how is Prince Mohammed bin Nayef perceived by ordinary Saudis? Is he more progressive, more liberal? Uh, hard to say how ordinary Saudis perceive him because you know, it's, it's not a country where there's a lot of freedom of speech where you can actively criticize members of the ruling family. My impression is that he has a reputation as being a pretty efficient guy. He was subject to a terrorist attack by an al-Qaeda member some years ago, uh, which he suffered a number of injuries. That, I think, increased his popularity among the Saudi public. Gregory Gauss III is professor of political science at the University of Vermont. He specializes in uh, Saudi Arabian affairs. Thank you for taking the time today to speak with us. It was my pleasure. Recognize that tune? It's the theme music for PBS's Masterpiece Theater. And if you remember the music, you probably know the name of the man who hosted the program for more than two decades. Good evening. I'm Alistair Cook. Alistair Cook, the Brit-turned-American who brought British dramas into American homes. Boring, right? I was around 10. I mean, upstairs, downstairs, really. 
But for decades, Cook also sent audio letters back to the BBC. Now more than 900 of Cook's surviving letters from America have been made available online. The world's Clark Boyd has been listening in during this U.S. election season. From the mid-1940s until just before his death in 2004, Alistair Cook sent an audio letter, really a 15-minute spoken essay, back to Britain almost every week. Good morning. Finally, on Tuesday the 3rd, something like 80 million Americans will go into voting booths For Cook, the presidency and the race for the White House were topics he was always eager to explain to his British audience. The presidency is a special show, a search for leadership, and every four years the people look for a new Moses, sometimes finding him in their party, sometimes in the other, sometimes off in the wilderness, like Ross Perot or John the Baptist. Think about it. Cook witnessed U.S. elections stretching from the time of FDR to George W. Bush. Wars, scandals, economic ruin, more wars, more scandals, more ruin. He'd seen it all, literally. And through it all, he insisted that there was really no predicting the unpredictable when it came to elections. How did he know? Well, he just asked his friends one question. Putting aside your own prejudice and looking at it as objectively as you can, what is going to happen? All but one of a dozen friends picked as the winner the man he wants for the winner, which is a natural, sad commentary on the capacity of the human being for objectivity in anything. Cynical? Certainly. But Cook's cynicism was grounded in a real reverence for the humanity of each politician he wrote about. In a later letter, he remembered a moment when he went aboard the USS Kitty Hawk in 1963. A sailor on the ship, an old friend of Cook's, took him to a room to watch a missile exercise, a special room with one man sitting inside, a man with a chronic back problem. There was one silhouetted figure that was as still and sharp as a cutout, the back of a man's head resting against the high back of a most extraordinary chair to be in this tiny cockpit. It was a rocking chair, and the head was, of course, the head of President John Kennedy. I asked my old sailor friend, how about the rocking chair? Where did you get it? Oh, he said, it's his, nobody else's. They fly it everywhere. Seems he has to have it. He can't walk for too long without either taking a bath or going to work in the rocking chair. Cook humanized Democrats and Republicans alike through the years. In 1974, he was only the third non-American ever to be invited to speak before Congress. Standing here now, I feel as if I were just coming awake from a nightmare in which I see myself before you unprepared, and naked, as one often does in dreams, (laughs) and looking around this awesome assembly and blurting out, I accept your nomination for the presidency of the United States. That humor aside, Cook could be a bit, shall we say, impatient when recording his letters. Here he is speaking with a sound engineer in San Francisco. Have you got your uh, stopwatch? If you want me to use a stopwatch, I'll be happy to use a stopwatch. Of course. I have one for you if you don't have one. Yes, sir, I have a stopwatch. I say good morning, good evening, but start on the good evening 
Listening to Cook's letters over the past few days has been comforting, I have to say. If you think this election is that much different from the previous ones, you're wrong. If you think people in the past weren't fed up with endless campaigning and negative comments, you're wrong. And no matter what you may think of the winner of this election, history may have another opinion entirely. Cook himself thought of Harry S. Truman as a midget in giant shoes at first. But in a letter written upon Truman's death in 1972, Cook said, When they've chipped away at him, I think there will be enough granite left in that plucky face. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. can sample more of Cook's Letters from America, we've got links at theworld.org. In Boston, I'm Aaron Schachter. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in tomorrow for our ongoing election coverage. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems, online at ritaallen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.